If the American people are aware of pending exercises and the danger they represent, May says, then the exercises cannot go live and affect the very terror events they are supposed to be rehearsing against. 9-11 and the July 7, 2005 bombings in London have smoking guns, proving that the mass murderers were not foreign terrorists, but domestic tyrants, May writes. The smoking guns, he says, are the terror exercises that simulated the attacks that actually occurred. While the terrorism drills created the contrarian scenario framework within which the real terror attacks occurred, it does not necessarily follow that the agency running the exercise is the actual terrorist. The true culprit may be a foreign agency who is covertly but intimately aware of the planning of the exercise. By having access to the critical computer networks involved in the exercise, this outside agency has the ability to hijack the drill and make it go live. While the real terrorists could be from any agency that is involved in the drill, they could also be from a foreign intelligence organization that has gained backdoor access to the computer networks on which the exercise is planned and carried out. Israeli military intelligence, for example, which has long been engaged in supplying enterprise software, such as P-TECH, and network security personnel and programs to the U.S. government and military, undoubtedly has backdoor access to these sensitive computer networks. As May says, the smoking gun terror drills disprove the official fairy tale that Islamic terrorists are responsible for these false flag terror attacks. The Arabs and Muslims who have been wrongly blamed for 9-11 and the London bombings have simply been framed, like Lee Harvey Oswald, as part of the deception. London, July 7, 2005 At the exact time of the terror bombings of the London Underground and a bus at Tavistock Square, a man named Peter Power and his crisis management team, Visor Consultants Limited, was conducting a terrorism drill for a mysterious unnamed client. The visor exercise was precisely identical to the bombings that occurred. How likely is such a coincidence? Peter Power had previously worked at Scotland Yard, the anti-terrorist branch, and as a police superintendent in West Dorset, England. In 1993, Power was the subject of a criminal investigation which led to his suspension and retirement from the police in April 1993. Superintendent Power was suspended following an internal police inquiry, which resulted in a file being submitted to the Director of Public Prosecution. Oddly, the details of the Power investigation have been kept classified. After a five-month investigation, Power retired from the police force in September 1993 at the age of 42 on health grounds. This is the real one. Just hours after the London bombings, Power explained the incredible coincidences with the drill his company was conducting in a radio interview with Peter Allen on BBC Five. Quote, Power. At half past nine this morning, we were actually running an exercise for a company of over a thousand people in London based on simultaneous bombs going off precisely at the railway stations where it happened this morning so I still have the hairs on the back of my neck standing up right now. Peter Allen, to get this straight, 
you were running an exercise to see how you would cope with this, and it happened while you were running the exercise? Power. Precisely. And it was about half past nine this morning. We planned this for a company, and for obvious reasons, I don't want to reveal their name, but they're listening, and they'll know it. And we had a room full of crisis managers. For the first time, they'd met. And so within five minutes, we made a pretty rapid decision. This is the real one. And so we went through the correct drills of activating crisis management procedures to jump from slow time to quick time thinking, and so on. We chose a scenario. Peter Power appeared in a television interview on ITV News on the day of the bombings and revealed more details about the terror drill he was involved in. Power. Today we were running an exercise for a company, bearing in mind I'm now in the private sector, and we sat everybody down in the city. 1,000 people involved in the whole organization, but the crisis team. And the most peculiar thing was, we based our scenario on the simultaneous attacks on an underground and mainline station, so we had to suddenly switch an exercise from fictional to real. And one of the first things is, get that bureau number. When you have a list of people missing, tell them. And it took a long time. ITV host. Just to get this right, you were actually working today on an exercise that envisioned virtually this scenario? Power. Er, almost precisely. I was up to 2 o'clock this morning. Because it's our job, my own company, Visor Consultants. We specialize in helping people to get their crisis management response. How do you jump from slow time thinking to quick time doing? And we chose a scenario with their assistance, which is based on a terrorist attack because they're very close to... Are uh, property occupied by Jewish businessmen. They're in the city, and there are more American banks in the city than there are in the whole of New York. A logical thing to do. And it, I've still got the hair, dot, dot, dot. One would think that such astounding revelations of a British terrorism expert about how the terror bombings were almost precisely like the exercise he had been conducting for a mysterious company would be of great interest to the media. That has, however, not been the case. There has been virtually no discussion in the mainstream media that the London bombings or other terrorist atrocities and disasters like 9-11 and the sinking of Estonia occurred within the context of security drills that were very similar to what actually happened. Why has this crucial background information been censored? Astonishing first-hand accounts like Peter Powers from people engaged in these exercises, were reported shortly after the events occurred. Yet these important stories were confined to local news outlets and not reported in the major national and international news outlets, in newspapers like the New York Times, for example, whose motto is, all the news that's fit to print. BBC and the series of explosions at the World Trade Center. Powers' comments about the amazing coincidences with his security drill were censored by the BBC in the same way as the eyewitness report of Stephen Evans, the reporter at the World Trade Center on 9-11. Evans was on the ground floor of the South Tower when planes struck the complex. When he appeared on BBC World Television shortly after the collapse of the Twin Towers, Evans repeatedly described a series of explosions he had witnessed at the base of the tower before it was demolished. From the first minute Evans spoke, however, it was quite obvious that his eyewitness report was being censored by the higher powers at the BBC. When the BBC later revisited the events of 9-11 with Evans, there was absolutely no mention 
of the series of explosions he had talked about on the morning of the attacks. How can that be? Such blatant and intentional omissions are properly defined as censorship. Evans' astonishing eyewitness account from 9-11 was evidently dropped into the memory hole at the BBC. Peter Power's revealing comments about the London bombings met the same fate. The BBC has a very peculiar history regarding the events of 9-11. Not only did the British network censor Evans' reports of explosions at the World Trade Center, it also reported that the building known as WTC-7 had collapsed about 30 minutes before the 47-story tower mysteriously fell into its foundation. Jane Stanley, a BBC World Television reporter in New York City on 9-11, reported at about 5.54 p.m., that's 21.54 GMT, that the Solomon Brothers building, owned by Larry Silverstein, had collapsed. Silverstein's building, however, which he later admitted had been pulled, did not collapse until 5.20 p.m., 22.20 GMT. BBC News Editor Richard Porter subsequently wrote on the BBC website in February 2007, We no longer have the original tapes of our 9-11 coverage for reasons of cock-up, not conspiracy. Close quote. But why would the BBC destroy its original tapes of 9-11? This was the same excuse for destroying evidence given by the corrupt Hoffman Estates, Illinois police, who said they had recycled the videotapes they had made of their three-man undercover tactical squad assaulting me at my house in August 2006. For independent journalists to question the controlled media's version of events from which such significant first-hand accounts have been censored is to risk being branded a conspiracy theorist. The public is now told that eyewitness reports from people who were actually in the disaster or saw it with their own eyes can no longer be considered reliable testimony. How very odd. Such was the case with the downing of TWA Flight 800 off Long Island, New York, in 1996, when more than a 100 eyewitnesses reported seeing what appeared to be a missile streak from the surface of the ocean, strike the aircraft, and cause an explosive fireball. I attended the final presentation of the official TWA 800 report, by the National Transportation Safety Board, the NTSB, in 2000, when David Meyer, whose only credential as a panel member was a Ph.D. in Applied Experimental Psychology from Rice University, audaciously dismissed the reports of more than 100 eyewitnesses as the collective hallucinations of intoxicated New Yorkers, based solely on the fact that it was a summer evening. At that point, it was abundantly clear that there was something seriously wrong with the NTSB and their investigation of the downing of TWA 800. The cover-up could not have been more obvious. The Plane into Building Drill of 9-11 On 9-11, an agency of the Department of Defense and the CIA was conducting a terror simulation in which an imaginary airplane from Washington's Dulles International Airport were to crash into one of the four towers of the suburban campus of the National Reconnaissance Office, NRO, in Chantilly, Virginia, just a few miles from the Pentagon. The plane that allegedly crashed into the Pentagon, American Airlines Flight 77, departed from the same airport at 8.20 a.m. on 9-11. When the terror scenario became real in New York and at the Pentagon, the NRO exercise was canceled, and nearly all its 3,000 employees, the people who operate the nation's eye in the sky, were sent home. 
The government said it was a bizarre coincidence that the NRO, a military intelligence agency working under the Department of Defense and the CIA, had planned a simulated exercise with a mock plane into building crash on the morning of 9-11. It was just an incredible coincidence that this happened to involve an aircraft crashing into our facility, spokesman Art Haubold told the Associated Press in August 2002. As soon as the real-world events began, we canceled the exercise. As the agency that operates the nation's spy satellites, the NRO personnel come from the military and the CIA. When the attacks occurred, however, most of the 3,000 people who work at the agency were sent home. Why would they do that? The fact that the spy agency had planned such a drill was casually leaked in an announcement for a Homeland Security Conference in Chicago in 2002. In a promotion for Speaker John Fulton, a CIA officer assigned as chief of NRO's Strategic Gaming Division, the announcement said, quote, On the morning of September 11, 2001, Mr. Fulton and his team were running a pre-planned simulation to explore the emergency response issues that would be created if a plane were to strike a building. Little did they know that the scenario would come true in a dramatic way that day. Critical Failures The most pressing questions about why the U.S. military air defense system failed to intercept the four hijacked planes on 9-11 are obviously of crucial importance. Captain May writes that even official apologists call 9-11 the greatest defense failure in American history. How could the most modern and expensive air force in the world fail to intercept four airliners, three of which roamed wild for hundreds of miles before striking landmark buildings in New York and Washington? Why was the U.S. air defense system unable to intercept several large, slow-moving planes as they struck the nation's largest city and its capital? These crucial questions have never been raised by the government-appointed commissions or the media, which have all avoided discussing the military exercises of 9-11. It's not that these drills were not reported, but rather that their connection to the disasters has not been openly discussed and investigated. Four months after 9-11, the Post-Standard of Syracuse, New York, published an article by Hart Seeley that featured first-hand accounts of the military radar operators of the Northeast Air Defense Sector, NEADS, at the former Griffiths Air Force Base in Rome, New York. These radar operators were the eyes of the U.S. air defense system for the eastern part of the nation on 9-11. In Seeley's article, the NEADS personnel explained how a North American aerospace defense, that's NORAD, exercise called Vigilant Guardian, which they were participating in, had caused systemic confusion, which prevented an effective military response to the real emergency. The confusion at NEADS was evident from the moment Boston Flight Control informed them that a plane had been hijacked. At 8.38 a.m., an air traffic controller telephoned Sergeant Jeremy Powell at NEADS to inform him that one of their planes had been hijacked and was headed to New York. Quote, is this real world or exercise, Powell asked. No, this is not an exercise, not a test, Powell was told, according to the transcripts of the 9-11 Commission report. Seeley's article described the context and the confusion at NEADS. Quote, 6 a.m., war games. Lieutenant Colonel Don Deskins figured it would be a long day, 
September 11 was day two of Vigilant Guardian, an exercise that would pose an imaginary crisis to North American air defense outposts nationwide. The simulation would run all week, and Deskins, starting her 12-hour shift in the operations center as the NORAD unit's airborne control and warning officer, might find herself on the spot. Day one of the simulation had moved slowly. She hoped the exercise gathered steam. It made a long day go faster. 8.40 a.m., real world. In the ops center, three rows of radar scopes face a high wall of widescreen monitors. Supervisors pace behind technicians who peer at the instruments. Here it is always quiet, always dark, except for the green radar glow. At 8.40, Deskins noticed senior technician Jeremy Powell waving his hand. Boston Center was on the line, he said. It had a hijacked airplane. It must be part of the exercise, Deskins thought. At first, everybody did. Then Deskins saw the glowing direct phone line to the Federal Aviation Administration. On the phone, she heard the voice of a military liaison for the FAA's Boston Center. I have a hijacked aircraft, he told her. American Airlines Flight 11, headed to Los Angeles, had veered off course, apparently toward New York. The liaison said to get some F-16s or something airborne. 41 minutes earlier, Flight 11 had left Logan Airport with 81 passengers. For the last 27 minutes, it had not responded to ground control. Deskins requested Flight 11's latest position, which an operator put up on the screen. Flight 11 wasn't there. Someone had turned off its transponder, the device that identifies the plane to ground control. Boston Center could still track it on primary radar, but the operators in Rome would be hard-pressed to find it amid the jumble of blips on their screens. We'll direct the intercept, the liaison told Deskins. Just get something up there. Deskins ran up the short flight of stairs to the battle cab and reported the hijacked plane. Real world, not a simulation. Not a simulation. What is most peculiar is that Seeley's informative article about the confusion among the critical military radar operators at NEADS was never published or referenced by any national newspaper in the United States. The New York Times, for example, has never even mentioned Vigilant Guardian, the air defense exercise that contributed to confusion behind the military's failure to protect New York City on 9-11. Oddly, among the national newspapers and news magazines of the United States, Vigilant Guardian was only mentioned once, very briefly in a Washington Post book review of the 9-11 Commission's report. The review began, If the 9-11 report had been written as a novel, nobody would believe it. The story is too far-fetched. The Post mentioned Vigilant Guardian when it quoted a little-noticed footnote from the report. Quote, when FAA officials realize, late, that planes are being hijacked, they can't monitor them or decide what to do. The vice president thinks he has issued orders to shoot down civilian planes, but the pilots in the air don't get the word. The military's air defense command isn't sure whether it's dealing with an exercise or a real event. Incredibly, according to a little-noticed footnote in the report, on 9-11, NORAD was scheduled to conduct a military exercise, Vigilant Guardian, which postulated a bomber attack from the former Soviet Union. Close quote. 
Vigilant Guardian obviously confused the military because simulated hijackings and false injects, radar indications of non-existent planes, were reportedly part of the exercise. This is why Deskins and others were initially uncertain whether the reports of hijacked planes were real-world or simulation. First thing that went through my mind was, is this part of the exercise? Air Force Major General Larry Arnold, who was at the command center at the Tyndall Air Force Base in Florida, told ABC News, is this some kind of screw-up? The military's inability to respond effectively to the rogue aircraft of 9-11 was evidently caused, at least in part, by the NORAD exercise. The fact that a similar exercise involving a plane striking a military facility near the Pentagon was being staged on the morning of 9-11 indicates that the computer-based exercises played key roles in the actual terror attacks that occurred. What role the military exercises played in the 9-11 terror attacks and how they could have been hijacked and by whom are questions that need to be answered and which will be addressed in a later chapter. The Estonia Catastrophe The unexplained sinking of the Baltic ferry Estonia on its way to Stockholm from Tallinn in late September 1994 is the third catastrophe, not chronologically, that occurred within the framework of a military exercise. The day before it sank, Estonia had been the scene of a terrorism exercise in which the simulation was a terror bombing of the ferry. Looking at the NATO military assets that were assembled nearby and the terrorism drill that had just been conducted on the ship, the stage was set and the actors in place for what turned out to be a real disaster. The Estonia catastrophe is Europe's worst maritime disaster since World War II. Tragically, 852 people are known to have died when Estonia sank in the early hours of September 28, 1994. More than 1,000 may have perished if the report is true that some 150 Iraqi Kurds were being smuggled to Sweden in a truck. Scores of people died in the frigid water of the Baltic Sea waiting for rescue boats and helicopters that came too late. More than 90 lifeless bodies were retrieved from the life rafts. NATO's Search and Rescue Exercise Although it is seldom mentioned, the Estonia catastrophe occurred on the first day of a 10-day NATO naval exercise called Cooperative Venture 94, in which more than 15 ships and a number of maritime aircraft were prepared to conduct humanitarian and search and rescue operations in nearby waters. The NATO exercise, which involved 10 NATO member states and the Baltic partner nations of Russia, Sweden, Poland, and Lithuania, was to be staged in the Skagerrak between Denmark, Sweden, and Norway, and the Norwegian Sea, according to the NATO press release about the exercise from September 16, 1994. The NATO nations who participated in the exercise were Belgium, Canada, Denmark, Germany, Italy, the Netherlands, Norway, Spain, United Kingdom, and the United States. Many other allies and partners sent observers to the exercise, according to the NATO press release. The fact that Estonia sank as the submarines, ships, planes, personnel, and satellites from the navies of 14 nations were preparing to begin their 10-day search and rescue operations exercise off the coast of Sweden raises several obvious questions that deserve to be answered. 
if NATO had 15 ships and a number of aircraft assembled nearby, prepared to conduct a search and rescue exercise, why did they stay away? The Swedish rescue helicopters were ill-prepared and ill-equipped, which resulted in a fatal delay for those waiting to be rescued. Of the 989 people aboard Estonia, only 137 survived. Were there specially equipped rescue helicopters or other aircraft that could have assisted? Drew Wilson, author of The Hole, a book about the Estonia catastrophe, wrote, Survivors who didn't die from hypothermia while floating on upturned boats or flotsam in the biting water waited four to six hours for rescue. NATO search and rescue personnel and equipment could have saved some lives. Flying time was under one hour. Why didn't they respond to the distress traffic? What happened? The evidence indicates that the May Day signals from Estonia had been jammed, as were all radio communications in the area. A series of comprehensive malfunctions in regional communication systems all at once and all at the exact time the ferry had sunk suggest involvement by a military or intelligence services, Wilson wrote in the hole. Was a distress call intentionally blocked? If so, why? Communications throughout the northern Baltic Sea were disrupted during the time of the accident. As Wilson documents, VHF Channel 16, the International May Day Channel, and Channel 2182 were blocked. Signal jamming of all radio communications apparently occurred on the southern coastline of Finland as the accident unfolded. Werner Hummel, the German investigator, said that his group had documentation showing that the regional telephone network servicing the catastrophe site failed just as it was needed most. The malfunction was truly a startling coincidence. The telephone company stated its entire radio communications network, for unknown reasons, had been down from 1.03 to 1.58 a.m., almost exactly the time the Estonia first encountered trouble until the time it disappeared from radar. Did the NATO communications units prepared for the search and rescue exercise overhear the distress calls coming from Estonia? NATO, with state-of-the-art satellite and airborne surveillance assets in place over the Baltic Sea, certainly must know who was blocking the SOS calls. Why has this information been kept secret since 1994? Blocking SOS calls and jamming distress signals is a violation of international law. Why has this crime not been investigated? The intentional blocking of the May Day signals from Estonia points to complicity in mass murder. Naval exercises are meant to be as realistic as possible. Olivier Schmidt, director of the Intelligence Files, Today's Secrets, Tomorrow's Scandals, writes... What was the search and rescue scenario of NATO's Cooperative Venture 94 exercise, which was commanded at sea by the Dutch submarine commander Giesbert Goffert Hoft? I sent a series of questions to Robert Pagel, NATO's press officer for Baltic issues, about NATO's response to the Estonia catastrophe. Quote, Did NATO have any naval assets in the Baltic Sea on the night of September 27, 28, 1994? And what actions did NATO take in the immediate aftermath of the Estonia disaster. Did NATO pick up the May Day signals being sent and jammed from Estonia? Why didn't NATO assist given the urgent need to retrieve hundreds of freezing people from life rafts? What was the scenario of NATO's search and recovery exercise?
close quote. Despite telephone calls and email exchanges with the press office at NATO headquarters, Robert Pagel failed to respond to a single question about NATO's failure to respond to the Estonian catastrophe. Drew Wilson met the same wall of silence at NATO when he asked questions about Estonia for his book, The Whole. NATO had 14 ships, submarines, aircraft, and personnel from the United States, Europe, Sweden, and Russia assembled near the scene of the sinking of Estonia. If NATO has a reasonable explanation for its failure to respond to Europe's worst maritime disaster since World War II, why is it unwilling to provide it? Estonia's Bomb Drills The Estonia ferry had been the object of bomb threats and had participated in at least two terror bomb exercises in 1994, one in February and another one just the day before it sank. On February 2, 1994, Estonia was the subject of a major mock bomb exercise conducted with RITS, Sweden's Maritime Fire and Rescue Agency, and the Stockholm Police. The Stockholm Police had requested to take part in the exercise and used bomb-sniffing dogs to find explosives. The terror simulation involved a scenario in which bombs had been placed in the sauna and swimming pool area on the lowest deck, below the waterline in the bow of the ship. A second bomb was placed in the sleeping quarters on the first deck, also below the waterline. In the Estonia terror scenario, the explosives in the sauna were to be found by the dogs, while the second bomb was to explode. The purpose of this terrorism drill was to train with the ship's crew and include shore-based terrorism experts and police with bomb-sniffing dogs brought to the ship by helicopter. In the simulation, The bombs were set to explode about halfway between the Estonian and Swedish coasts, which is where the ship actually sank in September 1994 after a similar mock bomb exercise. When Estonia sank, a bomb drill on the ship had just been concluded. Survivors from the sinking actually reported hearing two huge explosions immediately before the ship listed to starboard. Several crew members testified to having heard the coded fire alarm, Mr. Skylight to number one and two, over the ferry's public address system at about 1.02 a.m. after the vessel had listed severely. This is the message for the crew that was used during the previous bomb drill in February 1994. Mr. Skylight was a signal for the firefighters to go to fire stations one and two and prepare for damage control. The coded alarm indicates that there was damage caused by a fire or explosion that required immediate attention. The massive ferry, 150 meters in length, sank in less than 30 minutes. The fact that the ship sank extremely quickly and the eyewitness reports from survivors suggest that explosives had torn a large hole in the hull below the waterline, as in the drill. Swedish policemen, who had just conducted training involving a mock bomb threat on the ferry, were returning home when Estonia sank. Of the 70 policemen, only seven survived. According to survivors, Estonia sank after two explosions rocked the ship in the middle of the night. A drill of a bombing simulation on the ship had just been completed the day before. It is now known that the passenger ferry was being used to transport Soviet military contraband when it sank. The highest officials in Swedish customs, 
government, and military were aware of the sensitive and illegal shipments that put the ferry and her passengers at risk. Is this why they have been so dedicated to protecting the lies about the sinking? Chapter 5. Why did crucial computer systems fail? Quote, P-TECH was with MITRE Corporation in the basement of the FAA for two years prior to 9-11. Their specific job is to look at interoperability issues the FAA had with NORAD and the Air Force in the case of an emergency. If anyone was in a position to know that the FAA, that there was a window of opportunity or to insert software or to change anything, it would have been P-TECH along with MITRE. Close quote. Indira Singh, IT and risk consultant with J.P. Morgan Chase and DARPA at the 9-11 Citizens Commission hearings, New York City, September 9, 2004. Why did crucial computer systems fail? The dependence of the U.S. government and military on computer systems, which often run software provided by outside vendors, is an Achilles heel of the world's most powerful nation. The failure of crucial computer systems on 9-11 is proof of that fundamental weakness and vulnerability. Apart from being a monstrous crime of mass murder and false flag terrorism, 9-11 was also a sophisticated computer crime carried out through long-term foreign infiltration of the most sensitive U.S. military and government computer networks. This infiltration gave the perpetrators real-time access to all the data on the computers of the U.S. government and military. On 9-11, this super-user access gave the people behind the terrorist attacks the ability to thwart a military response to the emergency as it developed. P-TECH and 9-11 The subject of computer sabotage in relation to the aerial attacks of 9-11 was first raised by Indira Singh, who spoke at some of the early 9-11 conferences. During these 9-11 truth events, Singh talked about a small Massachusetts-based software company called P-TECH, which she said was linked to Arab terrorists. P-TECH was said to be a startup company from Quincy, Massachusetts, whose software was running on the most sensitive computer systems of the U.S. government, including those of the Federal Aviation Administration, the FAA, and the U.S. Air Force, two agencies whose computer systems evidently failed on 9-11. Singh, a senior risk and IT consultant with J.P. Morgan Chase in 2001, is described as a whistleblower because of her revelations about P-TECH's involvement with the critical computer systems that failed on 9-11. Quote, P-TECH was with MITRE Corporation in the basement of the FAA for two years prior to 9-11, Singh said. Their specific job is to look at interoperability issues the FAA had with NORAD and the Air Force in the case of an emergency. If anyone was in a position to know that the FAA, that there was a window of opportunity or to insert software or to change anything, it would have been P-TECH along with MITRE. MITRE Corporation The MITRE Corporation has provided computer and information technology to the FAA and the U.S. Air Force since the late 1950s. MITRE is a federally funded research and development center, FFRDC, for the Department of Defense, the FAA, and the Internal Revenue Service. 
MITRE is a major defense contracting organization headed by the former director of Central Intelligence, Dr. James Rodney Schlesinger. Schlesinger, who was reportedly made DCI at the request of Henry Kissinger in 1973, later served as Secretary of Defense. Schlesinger, a former director of strategic studies at the RAND Corporation, was described in a 1973 biography as a devout Lutheran. Although he was born in New York in 1929 to immigrant Jewish parents from Austria and Russia, MITRE's Command, Control, Communications, and Intelligence (FFRDC) for the Department of Defense was established in 1958. The C3I, Command, Control, Communications, and Intelligence, supports a broad and diverse set of sponsors within the Department of Defense and the intelligence community. These include the military departments, defense and intelligence agencies, the combatant commands, and elements of both the Office of the Secretary of Defense and the Office of the Joint Chiefs of Staff, according to MITRE's website. Information systems technology, it says, coupled with domain knowledge, underpin the work of the C3I FFRDC. The U.S. Air Force maintains its Electronic Systems Center. At the Hanscom Air Force Base in Bedford, Massachusetts, the ESC manages the development and acquisition of electronic command and control systems used by the Air Force. The ESC is the Air Force's brain for information command and control systems, according to Charles Paoni, a civilian employee of the ESC. It is the product center for the Air Force's Airborne Warning and Control System (AWACS) and Joint Surveillance Target Attack Radar System, Paoni said. Asked about MITRE's role at the ESC, Paoni said, "MITRE does the front-end engineering. It's basically our in-house engineer. MITRE employees operate the computer systems at Hanscom Air Force Base," Paoni said. MIT's Lincoln Laboratories, the parent of MITRE, is located on Hanscom Air Force Base. A second FFRDC. The Center for Advanced Aviation System Development provides computer engineering and technology to the FAA. Miter's support of the FAA began in 1958 when the company was created. The FAA's Airspace Management Handbook of May 2004, for example, was written and published by the Miter Corporation. Jennifer Sherman, Miter's public relations manager for corporate identity in Bedford. Said that Mitre is a trusted mentor for the FAA, and is a unique provider of objective and independent information for the U.S. Civil Aviation Authority. Mitre's Bedford headquarters are located near Boston's Logan Airport, where the two planes that struck the World Trade Center supposedly originated. Bedford lies directly under the flight path of westbound flights leaving Logan. Mitre developed the technology to aid controllers in solving problems. While keeping aircraft close to their route, altitude, and speed preferences, Sherman was unable to say why the Mitre technology failed on 9/11. P-TECH. In her speeches about P-TECH, Indira Singh talked about P-TECH's alleged connections with Saudi Arabia, but said little about Mitre. Here's an extract from an interview she did with Pacifica Radio in 2005. Quote. Maybe those organizations don't fully know who their masters are, and P-TECH is the one thread, the one golden thread you pull on 
And all of this is unraveled because it goes into the corporations. It goes into these government entities. It goes into the terrorism financing entities that were, that none of which have been, by the way, taken to task. There are just so many questions about what does this all mean. And as we investigated, as I investigated further, we found that the origins of P-TECH were very interesting. Where did this company come from, obviously, is the first question. And how did they get to be so powerful? Who were the people? Who were the organizations that brought them in? Who knew? Who gave them the power? P-TECH software is utilized at the highest levels of almost every government and military and defense organization in this country, Singh said, including the Secret Service, the FBI, the Department of Defense, the House of Representatives, the Treasury Department, the IRS, the U.S. Navy, the U.S. Air Force, and last but not least, the Federal Aviation Administration. I found it hard to believe that the most sensitive government and military computers would run enterprise software from a Lebanese-owned startup company called P-TECH. All the talk about the Saudi financier behind P-TECH being linked to Osama bin Laden seemed fishy. It simply did not make sense that the most secure computer systems of the U.S. government would be running software written by a Lebanese Muslim immigrant financed by a Saudi who happened to be on the most wanted list of global terrorists. Osama Ziada, a Lebanese immigrant who came to the United States in 1985, founded P-TECH in 1994. After 9-11, P-TECH was said to be connected to the Muslim Brotherhood and Arab financiers of terrorism. The firm's suspected links with terrorism resulted in a consensual examination by the FBI in December 2002. The media reports of the FBI raid on P-TECH soon led to the demise of the company. When I turned my attention to P-TECH in early 2005, I discovered that a key person involved in the development of the company was a Zionist Jewish lawyer named Michael Goff from Worcester, Massachusetts. Here's what Goff Communications' website said in 2005 about his work with P-TECH. Michael was marketing manager at P-TECH Incorporated, a leading provider of business process modeling, design, and development software. In this capacity, Michael managed various marketing programs and activities, including public relations, direct mail, web development, collateral, trade shows, and seminars. Additionally, Michael also worked closely with P-TECH's sales organization to perform competitive analysis as well as manage lead tracking and fulfillment activities. When Michael first joined P-TECH, he shared responsibilities between marketing and information systems for the company. As information systems manager, Michael handled design, deployment, and management of its Windows and Macintosh data and voice networks. As part of this effort, Michael developed Lotus Notes-based systems for sales and marketing, lead tracking, and IS service and support requests. Michael also performed employee training and handled all procurement for software, systems, and peripherals. At the time, March 2005, Goff's website said that he was working for an Israeli-run computer security company called Guardium. Goff's relationship with a Mossad-funded database security company raised my suspicion that P-TECH was probably an Arab false front that was actually controlled by Israeli intelligence. Goff would have been their primary agent inside the company. Guardium is less than five miles from Hanscom Air Force Base, 
site of MIT's Lincoln Labs, and about the same distance from Boston's Logan Airport. Guardium, a database security firm, was clearly a Mossad-funded operation. This was evident by the three Israeli venture capital firms that financed Guardium, Cedar Fund, Veritas Venture Partners, and Stage One. A closer look at the key personnel of these firms revealed that they were all manned by high-level agents of Israeli military intelligence. Michael Goff has solid Zionist credentials, which explains why Israeli intelligence would use him as a Sayan, that is, a helper who is willing to perform a necessary function for the Mossad. Goff's father and grandfather were highest-level masons in the Worcester Lodge of B'nai B'rith, the secret Masonic organization of Zionist Jews that was established in New York City in 1843. Goff got involved with P-TECH in 1994. When I asked him how he wound up working with P-TECH, he told me that he had left his law firm and been placed with P-TECH through a temporary agency, although he could not name the agency. I found that rather hard to believe. Why would a young American Jewish lawyer, working with a good law firm in his hometown, suddenly leave the practice to start working with a dodgy startup software company owned by a Lebanese Muslim and financed by a Saudi? Why the abrupt career change? With this discovery, it seemed clear to me that the Israeli hidden hand behind P-TECH had been exposed. My revelations about the Zionist connections at P-TECH were published in a newspaper based in Washington, D.C. in April 2005. Singh, however seemed to ignore the evidence of an Israeli connection to P-TECH and continued to talk about the company being linked to Saudi sponsors of terror. In any case, Singh and I were asking the same questions. How did P-TECH get to be so powerful? Who gave them the power? Who were the people that brought them in? Who knew? After 9-11, the crucial question was how did P-TECH software get onto the critical U.S. government networks, particularly those of the FAA, the U.S. Air Force, and NORAD. Who would have allowed P-TECH personnel access to the FAA's core air traffic control system computers in Herndon, Virginia? During my research about the military exercises that were ongoing when 9-11 occurred, I read documents about how the FAA and NIAD's computer systems failed. The FAA in particular was extremely slow to contact the military about the rogue aircraft of 9-11. In one case, one of the rogue aircraft had been allowed to fly without communication for nearly 30 minutes before the military was notified. The heart of the matter. The flawed and delayed FAA procedures and communications with the military are the heart of the matter, as 9-11 relative Kristen Breitweiser said. Quote, You know, it is very upsetting that the 9-11 Commission had to subpoena the Federal Aviation Administration According to news reports, there are 150,000 documents that were left out of what the FAA sent to the Commission. These documents went toward the timeline of when the FAA notified the North American Aerospace Defense Command, NORAD, when the fighter jets were scrambled, and the communications between air traffic control and the pilots. These are threshold issues that go to the heart of the matter. How did the FAA overlook 150,000 documents pertaining to these issues? It is more than mildly upsetting that they would leave out these documents. Close quote. Monty Belger at the FAA. 
In the documents about the FAA failures on 9-11, I came across the name of a Monty R. Belger, acting deputy administrator of the FAA at the time. A long-term FAA official who began his career with the FAA in Chicago, Belger was the senior official who oversaw the upgrading of the FAA air traffic computer systems that began in the late 1990s and which was ongoing in 2001. Belger, as acting deputy administrator for air traffic services and system operations, was the key man at the FAA making the executive decisions about these computer upgrades, as the New York Times of June 7, 2001 reported. The Aviation Agency is installing a computer system that controllers can use to determine whether airplanes can depart from established traffic lanes and fly long distances and whether they will conflict with other airplanes by doing so. Close quote. Belger was the key decision maker at the Federal Aviation Administration, responsible for the software and computer upgrades that involved PTEC, the suspicious upgrades which were being done prior to 9-11. Documents and reports from the MITRE Center for Advanced Aviation System Development in McLean, Virginia, show that PTEC was working with MITRE on FAA computer systems. As his online biography says, Belger, a 30-year veteran of the FAA, was acting deputy administrator for the FAA for five years from 1997 to 2002, leading the 49,000-person team and in charge of operating the world's safest aviation system. During his tenure with the FAA, Belger was the Associate Administrator for Air Traffic Services, responsible for day-to-day operations of the nation's airspace system, and supervised the FAA's modernization plan aimed at improving aviation capacity, safety, and service to airlines. Belger played a pivotal role in assisting in the transition of aviation security responsibilities from the FAA to the new Transportation Security Administration, and he co-chaired the FAA's successful efforts to adopt acquisition and personnel reform. Belger retired from the FAA in September 2002. U.S. Aviation Technology, LLC After he left the FAA, Belger became the vice president, government connection, of a small Israeli-run company based in the Fort Lauderdale area called U.S. Aviation Technology. The company was founded by Ehud Uri Mendelssohn, who described himself as, quote, a captain in the prestigious Army Intelligence Unit of the Israel Defense Force. Ehud received his B.S. degree in business and economics from the Bar Ilan University in Tel Aviv, Israel. He holds a computer network engineer certification from Microsoft and Novel, his webpage said. Company documents and information from the Israel Venture Capital Research Center website, also showed Monty Belger of Centerville, Virginia, as a vice president and government connection of U.S. Aviation Technology, LLC. Mendelssohn, age 51, was chief technology officer of U.S. Aviation Technology, which was apparently based out of his apartment in Parkland, Florida. Mendelssohn's company promoted a remote control system that allows a ground pilot to monitor and adjust the computer flight systems on aircraft. As his company presentations say, we put the ground pilot in the cockpit. The software and system promoted by Mendelssohn is designed to obtain real-time data from the aircraft's computer recorders in order to monitor flight systems, 
and make corrections if necessary. The possibility to remotely hijack a plane with this system is obvious. Mendelssohn also promoted a flight data animator, which he said gives the ground pilot all of the data and the visuals that the pilot in the aircraft has. In the two online presentations of this equipment, it was stated that corrections could be made by the ground pilot to avoid an accident or situation. The data is sent via satellite to an antenna on the top of the aircraft. This software and equipment allow a remote pilot to fly the aircraft. Mendelssohn was apparently promoting this software and system before 9-11 and hoped to have it on the market in November 2001, according to a document in his company presentation. I called Monty Belger to ask about his relationship with Ehud Mendelssohn and his remote control aviation company. I found it very disturbing that a senior administrator with the FAA would be associated with such a business project, especially after 9-11. I reached Belger at his home on Eagle Tavern Lane in Centerville, Virginia, at about 9 a.m. on January 24, 2008, and asked him about his relationship with U.S. Aviation Technology and Ehud Mendelssohn. He denied knowing or having anything to do with either the man or the company, and asked me to call back later to his office at Lockheed Martin Corporation, where he was a vice president responsible for transportation system security. When I called Belger at his office, he put me on speakerphone, he said, in order to try and access the websites where he was named as a vice president of U.S. Aviation Technology. He continued to deny knowing anything about the company or its founder, a member of Israel's Army Intelligence Unit. Peter Goltz of the NTSB. Peter Goltz the former managing director of the NTSB, the federal agency that investigates air crashes, was also named, along with Monty Belger, as Vice President, Corporate Strategy of U.S. Aviation Technology. Goats at the NTSB from 1995 until 1999 personally supervised the investigations of TWA Flight 800, Egypt Air 990, the Value Jet Crash in Miami, and the mysterious crash of the young John F. Kennedy's plane off the coast of Cape Cod. There are many outstanding questions about what really happened to the aircraft involved in several of the high-profile cases that Goetz was involved in. Peter Goetz, former managing director of the NTSB, also oversaw the seriously flawed TWA-800 and Egypt Air 990 investigations. Prior to being appointed to the NTSB, during the Clinton administration, Goats had been a political advisor in New Hampshire and a lobbyist for gambling interests in Kansas City, but lacked any real expertise in accident investigation. I found nothing in his resume that would make him a suitable candidate to oversee aviation accident investigations. I called Peter Goats at his home on January 25, 2008 and asked him about his relationship with Ehud Mendelssohn and U.S. Aviation Technology. Goetz immediately recalled Mendelssohn, saying that he had been based in Miami, and said he had met with the Israeli captain from Israeli military intelligence two or three times in Washington, D.C. When I asked if his relationship with Mendelssohn had begun before or after 9-11, Goetz said that he did not remember. He did, however, have a very clear recall what Mendelssohn's company was all about real-time access to all the data from the computer system on an aircraft. Goetz said that he had a hard time understanding what was proprietary about Mendelssohn's U.S. aviation technology. He asked me to send him an email with my questions and the scope of my article.
In my email, I explained that as he was listed as a vice president of U.S. aviation technology on the company's website and on that of Israel Venture Capital, I asked how and when he had gotten involved with Mr. Mendelssohn. He wrote back on January 26 and asked me to enlighten him a little more on the focus of my work in this matter. It is worth noting that Gertz did not deny being a vice president of the company, but he was not forthcoming with information about his relationship with Ehud Mendelssohn. If Gertz was confused about Mendelssohn's system, he certainly does not show it in his comments that are found on the testimonial page of U.S. Aviation Technology, where he wrote, quote, I have reviewed your proposed integrated aircraft early warning system and believe it has considerable technical merit. During my years at the National Transportation Safety Board, we were greatly concerned about the increasing complexity of airplane accidents. Advances in safety, ground proximity warning devices, TCAs, etc., have virtually eliminated certain types of accidents and have forced a greater reliance on the flight data recorder. In a number of accidents, particularly those over open water, TWA Flight 800, Egypt Air, Swiss Air, etc., the investigations were seriously hindered until the boxes were recovered. In the tragic events of September 11th, three of the four FDRs were destroyed, so no data or voice recordings were recovered. Your system of real-time downloading of aircraft data meets a very real and pressing problem. Not only is it important from a safety and security standpoint, it also has applicability for navigation and flight management. A robust two-way data pipe from the aircraft to the ground and back could revolutionize the industry. The key to your system is its initial simplicity, relying on tested, almost off-the-shelf components. That your concept is well on the way to securing a patent further strengthens your proposal. I look forward to working with you on this project and believe that with the appropriate backing, it will be successful. Peter Goetz, former NTSB Managing Director. Close quote. Note, after contacting Belger and Goetz, the incriminating web pages were taken down from the Internet. This included the removal of the U.S. aviation technology documents. A warning message appeared when trying to access these documents. Some links can only be found using the Internet Archive tool, the Wayback Machine. This and all previous episodes of Unwelcome Guests are available for download from our MP3 archive at unwelcomeguests.net slash archive. Now, I'm going to echo a sentiment from about seven years ago, first aired on the show by the founding producer, Lynn Gary. I would love to hear from you if this show has been important to you, either via text or if you're happy for it to be included on air as mp3 audio email me unwelcome at unwelcomeguests.net our theme tune is by Billy Bragg and Wilco with lyrics by Woody Guthrie and the profits